Great to see everybody tonight. I uh, hope you are ready to pick up your Bible and just let's get with it because we've got some exciting stuff to cover tonight. I want to talk to you about God's manifold wisdom and how it relates to the church as a body of servants. One of the greatest things that you will ever do in your life is learn to love to serve other people. Last night we talked about Christians being distinct at work. And one of the great ways that we have to impact the world is to do a lot of great things that are servant-minded, that maybe other people feel like they're too good to do because of who we love so much. I'm not talking about your jerk boss. I'm talking about God. We represent, we work for we are a part of Jesus Christ and Almighty God. Well, let's get right to it. The book of Philippians is a wonderful book. I'm going to flip back and forth between several. I want you to understand why that happens. Very, very simple stuff. Here we go. When Jesus died on the cross, here's how it went. He developed followers. Not just a few, but they were very upset. Remember, they didn't understand that it was his plan completely to die on the cross. But that was his plan. He came, he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Okay? So he's going to be buried in the ground and he's going to rise again the third day. That message was powerful. It was so powerful, uh, I can give you an illustration of it. While Jesus was alive before the cross, there was a guy named Lazarus in John about chapter 11. Lazarus was a good guy, friends with Jesus. Jesus spent a lot of time there, and Lazarus died. Jesus came a few days later, and, and, and his loved ones and sisters would come and say, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. They had faith in him. Jesus wept with them at the, basically the mourning that had happened afterwards. And Jesus called him forth from the grave and raised him from the grave. That was such a powerful evidence of Jesus' resurrecting power that the Jews that were envious of Jesus and wanted to destroy Jesus' mission wanted to kill Jesus and they wanted to kill Lazarus too. You just keep that in your mind. They wanted to keep the evidence out of the way. So when Jesus had died, was buried, and now he rose again, he had been seen. If you've got your Bible, mark it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 4. It tells you the story and reality of that. But these guys, 12 of them, are going to go and they're going to begin preaching the message. The question is, why am I going to flip back and forth between? Here's how this goes. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four, we call those the Gospels because basically that gives you evidence to produce faith that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's impossible for us to reach people to know who Jesus is without knowing that he died, was buried, and rose again. And you learn about that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why are there four of them? If there was just one, somebody would say, well, that was just one guy. There's four. There's four that are written down. Eyewitness accounts. Then you come to the book of Acts, and that tells you how it was that people were saved by this message, and it shows you the church of Jesus Christ. Then, from Romans to Revelation, what you find is God sent people, he, he sent these guys to preach and show the word of God to churches. 
And I don't want, I don't want you to take this for granted. In other words, God didn't send and, and, and command all these letters to be written just to individuals not to be shared. He wanted them to be shared. Now, why is that? Here's why. All this is important, and this is why I'm going to flip back and forth between Matthew and Mark or Acts or Romans or Revelation or back and forth. Here's why. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete or perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every or all good works. That's why we flip around in our Bibles, and that's why you don't need to be confused when I do that tonight. So Paul writes to the Philippian church. They, had their, they were a pretty peaceful, good church. They had problems. They had issues at times. Chapter 4, verse 2 says, there were two women that weren't even getting along, and so he told these two women to get over the problem that existed between them, and the same could be written to, uh, of two men as well. But that's the kind of stuff that you read when you read these epistles. But you learn about something. You learn about the value of the church. I want you to understand God doesn't waste his time. The Bible says the Spirit speaketh expressly. You know what that means? It means God wants you to understand. He wants you to understand what he's thinking. 1 Corinthians uh, talks about the reality that God wants us to know now his mysteries. He wants us to understand what he's thinking. I'm going to give you an example of that. In Ephesians chapter 3, in Ephesians chapter 3, this is my favorite passage that shows how important all this is right here. Here goes. The Bible says in chapter 3, verse 3, how that God made by revelation known, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mysteries as I wrote before in a few words. Whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Now, while we preach the gospel with a smile on our face and we get excited about it and I get amped up about preaching it is because this is life-giving stuff. I'm not going to read to you Oprah Magazine or Vanity Fair or anything else. I'm going to read to you Scripture because the Word of God is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword and it's the only thing that can pierce your heart. My philosophy, my opinion, doesn't mean anything. But this means a great deal. Notice Paul said that we can read and know about the mystery. Let me tell you what, what the big plan was going to be. The big plan was for these guys to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believed and is baptized shall be saved. I don't know about you, but it's a no-brainer to ever exist and think about living this life without being saved. Just a no-brainer. Well, God came and he said, I want you to preach to people. There's two things that happen when you preach to people. Number one, if you've got the word of God, here's what's going to happen. You're going to convict people that they're not right with God and it's going to be a compelling reality and they're going to be told what to do to get right with God. That's going to happen. They're going to be convicted 
of the sin and the problem they have in their life, and they're going to be given the solution to that problem. That's good gospel preaching. That's the way it's always been. Okay? It's good news. It's real good news. It would be the equivalent of you walking in the back door and saying, I've got Ebola, and watch the building clear, right? But if you walked in and said, I've got Ebola, I would want that vial of that cure that they ran out of early on where people recovered real quick, right? Well, what we offer is exactly that, except more compelling and more powerful. Because what we offer and what Jesus offered was to change people. Not to just change them from being a sinner, but to show them how to live. The word church means called out. You know what we're called out of? We're called out of sin. That's the big problem and why churches fail to get and draw people and why people are really disinterested with the church. You want to know why people are disinterested with the church? Jesus said it's because they're disinterested in me, really. You say, no, 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 Colin. You don't get it. People like Jesus. He's good. Well, you can't have Jesus without his teachings. Jesus said in John 6, 63, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. What we offer is a life-giving message, but Jesus said this, this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So here's what happens. The preacher preaches a message where people realize I'm a sinner and I'm lost and people run for the door. Why? Because their sin is exposed. Do you know what happens when your sin is exposed? You've got to either run from it or do something about it. You've got to run from it or you've got to do something about it. You want to know why there are so many young people that are approaching, uh, they call them millennials, that are not uh, questioning whether they believe in God or not? I want to tell you why. It's because too many millennials are sexually active and the God of heaven is the God of morality. And he requires pure living. And the reason why people walk away and say, I'm not sure I believe in God. Who is he? Is because they're living a lifestyle that God says is not okay. You see, that conviction's hard. That conviction's a very real thing. It's a compelling thing. Jesus doesn't leave you alone. He never has left people alone. You may run away from him. You may hide from him. You may ignore him. But Jesus is real. And his message is real. So the church is called out of sin. You know what God does to all saved people? According to Acts chapter 2, the Bible says he adds them to the church. You know what he calls the church? If you open your Bible to that same book or that written to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 1, here's what the Bible says. Far above all principality, chapter 1 verse 21, and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in the one that is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. In the very next chapter, a passage that people read all the time, we are saved by grace through this faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then he says, the church and everyone that is saved is created in Christ unto good works. In other words, 
I'm going to change you from producing sin to producing righteousness. I'm going to change you little by little until people see changes in you. I'm going to change the outcome of what your life looks like, church. Because the church is not this building. The church is people. When Paul wrote the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 1 and 2 specifically, he was writing to people that were proud Roman citizens. He had to teach them that they were citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Over and over again, the church is used. I, I, I promised a little tutorial of this. This is why we flip passages, because God wrote the Bible, not man. And the reason why the church is pictured as the church and the body and the bride and the vine and the household and the family is because God wanted to communicate it in as many ways as possible to help you recognize not only his close association, but the essential fact that if you want a relationship with Jesus Christ, you cannot ever disregard his church. In Acts chapter 7, verse 58, the Bible says Saul made havoc of the church in the form of holding the coats of the people that killed the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Acts 8, 1 through 4 says Saul went everywhere making havoc of the church. In Acts 9, Jesus met Paul on the road to go kill Christians and put them in prison. And here's what he said. Why are you persecuting me? I want you to make the connection. The Bible says Saul was making havoc of the church. Let me make this very clear again. The church is people. He was killing people. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? The body of Christ is the way in which God strips away all of the selfish, envy, and sinful pleasures of this life and creates something as a group. And he wants us to shine as a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. He would pray that the church, Paul would write, that the church should be without spot and without wrinkle and without blemish. Paul writing to these Roman Christians they were heavily in love with the idea that they were Roman citizens. And now he strips their gears and says, no, no, no. You are citizens of a kingdom whose king is in heaven. Paul would not just write them about a kingdom. Paul would write the Corinthian church about the idea of the body of Christ. And that's what I want to talk to you about for a little while. We'll come back to this Philippian congregation very quickly. The body of Christ is very unique. The physical body is also unique. In a 24-hour period, a normal adult body accomplishes a great deal. The heart beats 103,689 times. The blood travels 168 million miles. We breathe 23,000 times. We inhale 438 cubic feet of air. We eat 3.25 pounds of food, unless you're at Frankie and Tina's. You drink three quarts of liquid. You lose quite a bit of waste. You speak thousands of words. You move 750 muscles. You exercise over 7 million brain cells, unless you smoke pot. And a lot of other things go down. Those are the things that happen in your physical body. Real things that go down every day that we take for granted. When you look in the mirror, there's a whole lot happening here. 
Well, there's also a whole lot happening beside, behind the scenes when you read and you say, church, what does that mean to you? When you say body of Christ, what does that mean to you? Can you exist and live your life without any respect to the church, without attending worship? Can you live your life disregarding the concept of regular commitment to a church? I don't think you can live your life without commitment to the church any more than you can live your life without commitment to Christ. Because they're one and the same thing. They're a unit. You can't have Jesus without the church. You just can't. There's, there, there's a couple of relationships in my life that I value very greatly. The most important one in my life besides God is my wife. You want to get me irritated, you try to split us up and divide us. You try to work one against another. No, I hate that. That's not going to work. Why is that? Because we, we always try to be on the same page. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean as, as husband and wife, we always do that. But I'll tell you this. Jesus is the perfect husband. We're the ones that have to get it. Jesus is the one that died for his bride. That's all of us. We're the ones that have to act like a bride should act. I don't know anybody, nobody that I know that wants to go marry somebody that acts like they could care less about the person they married. Do you? Certainly not. Whenever you discuss church, I want you to think about Jesus. He died for the church. He gave his life's blood for the church. In Acts chapter 20, Paul was writing, or rather we have recorded what he said to the Ephesian elders. In Acts 20, about verse uh, 28, here's what it says. You take heed to yourselves, unto yourselves, and to all the flock. That's what Christians are called sometimes, sheep. So you take heed to the flock over which the Holy Ghost or Spirit has made you overseers or elders to feed the church of Jesus or God, which he had purchased with his own blood. If you're ever feeling like you're having self-esteem problems and you feel like you have no value and you're feeling like somehow in this old world that you, you, you don't know how you add any value and you get to questioning that, I want you to anchor yourself and think about Jesus dying on the cross of Calvary because I think of his piercing eyes looking down through the ages and finding your eyes and making contact and helping you recognize that you have value and if you were the only soul that would ever be saved, I absolutely believe Jesus would have come down and gone through all that he went through for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There are people that misquote that and say, I believe in Jesus and automatically they falsely assume they have salvation. That is a gross error. There were people that disregarded and disputed the doctrine of the church and the Apostle Paul would write about them and say, Hymenaeus and Philetus have made shipwreck of their faith. Why is that? Because they were tearing up the church. What's your view of church? 
Why don't you let God determine your view of church for just a few minutes tonight? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, here's what happens when you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. Let me see if I can get this straight. We're living in a big old bad world. And God's trying to call sinners out of sin into the church with his book. Now, if people believe in Jesus, if they love Jesus, there's got to be a place that God puts them. Let's see if we can find that. Remember I told you that the book of Acts tells us about how to be saved in the beginning of the church? The Bible says that when people cried out and recognized and were convicted by the gospel... They cried out and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Why do you think anybody would ask that? It's the question you better be asking if you've never gotten serious about your soul. You'd better be asking that question and you had better be getting God's answer to it. Because here's the problem. Too many people get answers from mama and daddy. And because mama and daddy had some kind of a loose relationship, so to speak, with religion, people automatically assume that because of DNA, I have a relationship. Not so. You see, you've got to make up your mind for yourself. These people said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter and the rest of the apostles said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. You know what they did? The Bible says, Then they that gladly received their word were baptized, and that same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. You know what that means? Every sinner better get serious about that question and about that answer, and they had better respond quickly. 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 The Lord added to the church daily every sinner that was being saved. And do you know what you find from the book of Acts on to the book of Revelation? Every letter was to be written to and read to the churches as authority from Jesus, from God, and from the Holy Spirit. So when you read your Bible... You are not reading something that is the personal advice that was only to be revealed to one guy or one little segmented people. What he was doing is he was writing law or the law of Christ to the church. In fact, there were times the letters that were written, here's how they would do it. He would say that letter from Laodicea that I wrote to you, you bring that letter down here to Colossae and you take the letter I wrote to the Colossians and you take it up there and you do everything. And he would say it like this. I have taught everywhere in every church. Why did he say that? Because from Matthew to Revelation was not written by men. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37, if you think you're spiritual or a prophet, you need to acknowledge that the things I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But again, who did he write to? He wrote to churches. Are you in a church tonight? Are you in a church that Jesus built? 
I want to tell you, I could go get a tax-free charter, and I could go out tomorrow in this state or my home state of Louisiana, and I could come up and say, I'm going to start Cullen's Church. My question to you is, is that the one that Jesus did? Well, no. No. I want to tell you why you need to pay attention to this. There are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people that would love to tell you that you can have a relationship with Jesus and live whatever life you want to live and call it church. Jesus never taught that doctrine. He never, ever taught that doctrine. Here's what he would say. Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They that, lead, they that are blind and they that follow the blind, both of them shall fall into the ditch. Listen, don't you dare check your brain in at the back of a church house door. Don't you dare check your brain in and give it to somebody else and say, what do you think? You lick your finger and you open up your Bible in the privileged United States of America and you get it in whatever language you need it and you find out what God said. Because what I've just shown you is from Matthew to Revelation is what God said. I don't matter. You don't matter. Mom and daddy don't matter. Paul said this. Do not think of men above that which is written. You get your Bible out. And if I've stirred something inside of you, I'm going to tell you the people that are going to be saved. You ready to hear this? The people that are going to be saved have an allegiance to Jesus and his word. And they will drive to the furthest parts of the earth to find truth. Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. I like to think I'm preaching to people that want the truth. You're not going to get the truth on Fox News or CNN or ABC or NBC or anything else. You will get the truth from God's word. And it was sealed by one reality. Jesus rose from the grave. That's how we know that this message that we have is real. Well, again, every member of the spiritual body has to work well together. We do not have a system in the Lord's church that is segregated by young and old. The Sunday school system of 1786 that was pretty much brought into existence from Robert Riggs along with our modern educational system, has segregated young people versus old people for so long that our culture does not understand the reality of what it means to have a very diverse family unit. I hate, this is kind of bad news for all the people that are getting older in this crowd, but the old saying goes, be nice to your kids and your grandkids because they'll pick your nursing home. Some of you aren't smiling. I want to tell you about this. Whenever you talk about the family of God, you're talking about the very youngest to the very oldest. And God requires you to have a relationship with everybody in the body of Christ. Did you know that? Did you know that? Did you know God has an expectation that you not only have a relationship, but that you learn to love and serve and that you would be willing to lay down your life for your brother or your sister? God made family. And God made love because God is love. And God requires us to be plugged into two groups of people. Our own family and our church family. And if you've got a situation in your life where you're not plugged into either one of those, I feel very sorry for you. And it's easy to do. Because those are the two things that our society and our culture is going after like nothing else. 
the family, and the church. Name the last TV show where the, the dad on there that had any sense in, it all, in his head at all looked smart. Name the last time that our media ever made a Christian look like they offered some value to the world. No. Generally speaking, people view dads today as Bart Simpson's dad, Homer, and he's an idiot. Or people look at the church and they see people that are backwoods and racist and guns and Bibles. That's what our politicians say. That's garbage. That's a society that is off the rails. God made the family and God made our church family. God made those two groups of people. And if you choose not to plug into family and you live an illicit lifestyle outside the benefit of marriage, God's not okay with that. And if you live a lifestyle outside of a church family, God's not okay with that. How could God send his son to die for people that would ignore his gift? How can he be okay with that? He's not. He's not okay with that. God did not create cliques or groups in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 24 says, But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Where does God put you in the body of Christ? According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18, God puts you in the body of Christ just where you need to be. It's an honor. It's an honor to know that we've got kids here that get selected and they get cum laude da awards and they get cords around their neck and they've got all kind of, of things and ribbons and their teachers like them and love them and want some more of them and all that good stuff, right? We've got all kinds of awards that go along with that. When you talk about the body of Christ and you think about where God puts you in and how you're supposed to function, God wants everybody to recognize that they have a role and they are important. Important. We need you. We live in a world that sets up cliques and age differences and subsets within the body of Christ. That's never the way it was done. It's also very difficult at times for people to recognize just how much care God spent. He does not want us to compete. He wants us to serve each other and have the same care. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, the Bible says, From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share and causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. You know what I've learned? I've learned that you do not have to go to Disneyland or Disney World or on a great vacation to have quality time with your kids. You see, real relationships are not expensive. We live in a culture today that convinces us that you've got to go somewhere. You've got to do something. You've got to have some big frolic going in order to have great time. Not so. Not at all. You know the most important times you're going to have? 
time with your mom and your dad and your grandparents. It's easy to take those kind of times for granted. And there are some of you here that have been weeping over new-made grades, and it's not difficult for you at all to recall just simple, simple times and memories that flood back. Listen, you want to know one of the great reasons why you have to be here every Lord's Day, and I did use the word have to, is because you have a responsibility to the body of Christ. And in essence, you have a responsibility to Christ. Hebrews 10.24 says, when we come together... We provoke one another unto love and good works. That means that you don't skate in here, last off, and skate out as fast as you can get out of here. Why? Because that's not how family operates. That's not how it works. I'm not saying that you don't have somebody sick at home or maybe you've got to bust out on a Wednesday night because you've got to go to a job or whatever else. But you've got people here that are very important people, that matter a great deal to you, that should matter a great deal to you. Do you feel that? Do you feel that? Do you know you, your smile and your kindness and your gesture of goodness may be the very thing that salvages somebody's week? Your word of encouragement, your open arms and your hug, Kids know all about it. Kids know all about it. Kids know where they're wanted. Kids know when they're not wanted. It's our job in this group of people right here. Every time these doors are open, every time we're around, it's my job to make you know that you matter to me. And it's your job to make me know that I matter to you. That's our job. Imagine how important that is. That seems small. I, I'm, I'm not asking you to, to look at that as a deep thought, but it's very profound, and it's vital, and it's important when you read the Scripture. Paul would teach that every member of the body of Christ is important. When he would discuss all these things with the church at Philippi, he would use Jesus as an example of how we should look at life. Here's what he would say. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than himself. Let each of you look not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. You want a good family? Love your family. Care about your family. Spend time with your family. And allow your family to be in love with the church and with the one who founded the church, Jesus Christ. Because here's what's going to happen. You bring your family to church, you're going to have fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers and sons and daughters and nieces and in-laws and outlaws. And everybody there is going to get to read and understand the expectations of these most wonderful, privileged, 
God offered relationships, the home and the church, because it's easy in this life to get off track. It's easy for our marriages to get off track. It's easy for our parent-child relationships to get off track. And it's easy for brothers and sisters in Christ to get off track because we live in a selfish, wicked world. But in here, we've got something. We've got something. That's what Paul wanted us to recognize when Jesus built the church. Whenever he said, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, there are clear ways that we can demonstrate that. First of all, the idea of being like-minded is having the same way of thinking. How do you think? What governs your thinking? If you are a whimsical person and you have changed your belief system 5,800 times, that is not at all the way that God wanted you to live your life. God wants people to be principled. He wants people to have an ethic. He wants people to have a doctrine. He wants people to walk by faith in that doctrine. And it needs to manifest itself in their life. Satan wants you to walk by how you feel and your mood swings. And whatever it is that slaps you up against the face in life, that's how Satan wants you to operate. And if you're in this world and you're having lots of ups and downs and ups and downs and trauma and drama, and that's pretty much your M.O. and modus operandi of living, then I want to introduce you to the church of Jesus Christ and the family that he's offering you. Because that is not how we live our lives. It's not. There's a difference does that mean that that's easy and those differences and those changes are going to be easy to make? Not at all, but you've got a group of people that are going to help you get there. You know what happens when baby boy and baby girl step out of line? You've got a mama and a daddy and a brother and a sister that want to help you get back in line, right? You know, the saddest shows on earth to me are those shows called intervention, drug and alcohol abuse, people that abuse it. They got these nice people that are sitting there on the couch that are at their wits end. They do anything in the world to fix that situation and they've thrown everything and put everything on the line to try to get a person to come back to them and fix their lifestyle. They're willing to shell out thousands upon thousands of dollars, sometimes sell their home, move, do whatever it takes. Why is that? Because people will do anything for their family if they have the right set of values. You know what happens sometimes, though? That pitiful leech that sits there on the couch in the pit of selfishness and arrogance and anger and all kinds of accusations when people are begging and squalling and begging them to come back and be a part of the family and have the family values again, they will get up and walk out of the room and turn their back on their family. It happens. Now, it's one thing if it happens on TV in somebody's life. Imagine, imagine how the God of heaven, the father of all of it, all his faithful children is whenever people do that to the church that he created to be family. He wants us to be on the same page. Paul said it like this, imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. We need to be a people that recognize that the law of God is a good thing. 
In fact, the Bible speaks of it as the perfect law of liberty. Here's what Paul said to the Corinthian church. Now I commend you, brethren, for remembering me in everything, and because you hold fast truths and practices precisely as I have taught them to you. You know what he says to the Philippian church? If you open up your Bible to the book of Philippians, here's what you find out real quick in Philippians chapter 2. He's writing to the church. He tells them this. Let this mind, verse 5, be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ. Hang on a second. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So in other words, we need to copycat certain things. The next thing is, follow me. Keep the law of God. What's one of the laws of God? You need the mind of Christ. Do you have the mind of Christ? Do you have an unselfish attitude about other people? Are you willing to serve some people in Philippi were not. And so what he was having to do is work on them. You know what happens when we have family members that aren't quite there yet? We keep working with them. We help. We do everything we can. You see, our attitude is doctrinal. Our mindset is doctrinal. Our belief is doctrinal. Our faith is doctrinal. It's based on the Word of God. Number two, have the same love. In 1 John 3, 14 through 18... It helps us understand that loving brethren is not saying I love you, but it is shown in the lifestyle and the manner in which we act and treat other people. Number three, be of one accord. He would basically have one concept. I'll give you a singular concept that we should have. Whenever Jesus was asked in Matthew chapter 22, he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. If you want a singular concept about what the church and about what our family should be, it is love God, heart, soul, mind. Whatever we're on the same page about loving God, it's going to improve every relationship in our life. I want you to see the logic of this. Please, I beg of you, don't leave here without listening to what I'm saying here. Whenever you serve God and you devote yourself to Him and you surrender your will to His will, what happens is you are the one, I am the one that gets the benefit out of that. Other people get the benefit out of that. You know what happens when other people get benefit out of your life? You become a blessing. A blessing. Number five, he said in lowliness of mind. Jesus had no sin and he said this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. You want to know why he said I am gentle and lowly in heart? Proud people are not people that are saved. Arrogant people don't seek Jesus Christ. Arrogant people don't follow Jesus Christ. People that think they've got it all figured out and that the world just doesn't understand and that the world should revolve around them, those are not saved people. And those are people that will never know peace. Have you ever run into somebody that at school or work or wherever it was that was so arrogant and they had proud looks that just came out of their body? They couldn't help it. They were just absolutely arrogant. By the way, God hates a proud look, so I just want you to remember that. He hates it. Jesus asks people to follow. 
Jesus asks people to surrender. Jesus asks people to start acting like he did. In Ephesians 4 and 1, here's what he said. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And here's the next one. Esteem others better than yourself. There was a time in high school where I had a, a false sense of humility. If it came time for me to say, oh, I'm sure you could shoot a three-pointer better than me, I was lying. I didn't believe that. I thought I could pretty much do it better than you. There was a time when I played golf that I got pretty good. And I thought, nah, ain't very many people that can hit one further than I can hit it. Those days are over, all of them. I think today with... I think today pretty much cemented that in my mind. But I'll tell you this. There are some of you here that can do all those things better than me. And that doesn't mean I have less value. I can't catch a football as well as Tanner can anymore. It ain't happening. I can't get away from Taylor Elliott. He made me eat the dirt today in a Christian kind of way. I can't get away. I, I can't get away from things that I'm not good at anymore. It has nothing to do with my value. It has to do, though, with my aspect and how I view other people. And if I can look at other people and esteem them better than myself, if you can learn to do that, if you can learn to be happy for people that have success, if you can learn to be happy for people that don't have what you have, you're going to be in a very small minority. But here's the good part about it. You're going to be right in the family of God, and you're going to be a wonderful member of your own family. A haughty lawyer was annoyed by the humility of his neighbor who was a farmer. He told him, take up for yourself. Have some pride. Walk like you have some pride. Nobody pushes me around. The farmer replied, you see that field of grain? Only the empty heads stand up tall. You think about that. In our culture, we have the motto, if you're not the lead dog, the view never changes. Think about that. That's basically our motto in our society. A famous orchestra conductor was asked which instrument was the most difficult to play. He responded, second violin. Very quickly, I'm going to give you just a few things that you can take with you about this lesson that I want to encourage you to consider the church of Jesus Christ about and the changes that God wants to make and can only make when you are involved and a part of the church of Jesus Christ, the family of God. First of all, you need to have somebody to serve. Somebody to serve. You say, well, I could go and I could be good and I could be a philanthropist. That's right. But I want to tell you something. When somebody names a stadium after you and you get glory because of that, you've completely cheated yourself out of the privilege of serving for no payback at all. You know what I call people like that? Good for nothing. No, they're not good for nothing in the way that we say good for nothing. Sometimes we say, oh, they're good for nothing. And we mean literally they are good for nothing. But I say that to say that there are people that are good 
And they do nice things, but they destroy it by seeking glory. I want to say this to everybody in this building. You have a responsibility to serve people. The majority of health care costs are going to be spent on every aged person in the last year of their life. The majority. That means there's going to be a lot of sick people. There's going to be a lot of hospital stays. There's going to be a lot of nursing home visits. The Bible says in James 1 verse 27, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. If I were to ask for a show of hands, and I'm not, when was the last time you heard someone was sick that you were not immediately related to and you went to the hospital to see them and visit them and check on them? When was the last time you knew that someone was stuck? And I do mean stuck in a nursing home. And you went to see them. Here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to walk into a nursing home and nursing homes smell. You better realize that one day you're going to be in that same situation, in that same spot. You're going to open the door, and that person is going to look at you, and their face is going to light up. And all your tired days, and I'm so busy, and i got so much going on, and I've got to go here, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do the other, all that is going to go right away. And you're going to get to hear about a little bit of their doctor visit, and a little bit about Medicare, and a little bit about the fact that Medicare pays for two rubber tennis balls to be slit and put on the bottom of a walker, and they're really nice. I got some new ones. One day, that's going to be your conversation. You're going to be talking about your roommate that's not having a very good day. And then you're going to ask a question that's going to make you think. Who's been to see you lately? Well, honey, you're the first person that's been to see me this week. And what you're going to do is, you're going to leave there not tired anymore. And you're going to leave there probably feeling a lot better because, you see, that old person in that situation couldn't do one thing for you. That is basic good New Testament Christianity. And that's what church creates. That's what the Lord's church creates. If you don't know how to go visit a hospital, if you don't know how to go visit people that are sick, if you don't know how to go to a nursing home, then you don't know how to go to heaven. Because pure religion, you see, makes a difference in your life. And you go about and you do things for people that can't reciprocate at all. Those are the kind of people that church, when we're plugged into the Lord's church, those are the kind of things that are created. You train your kids to be that way. You train everybody's kids to be that way. You take people with you. There's a congregation in Missouri that about every uh, first or second Monday of the month, 
all the young men meet up at the building and they got a slew of widows. And they call ahead and they all have a plan and they stay about 15 or 20 minutes at each one of them. And they all go by and they take turns and they swap out. And maybe it's a light bulb and maybe it's bushes that need to be fixed or limbs or moving a chair or whatever it is. Those widows can't do one thing for the guys that are going to do that. But the greatest thing that's ever been done is for the guys that go do that. Because if you allow God, and if you plug into God long enough in his church, and he begins to make you into that kind of servant, you will never, ever, ever know anything but a life of joy. And the reason why people don't have joy is because they have completely destroyed the two institutions that God made to recharge and re-energize and to help us, the home and the church. And if you're going to be a servant of Jesus Christ, you're going to be a servant of His church. And you're going to look at every old person and every young person as your own family. Colossians 4 and 12 says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, laboring always fervently for you in prayers. If you don't think you can do anything for somebody else and you don't have wheels and you don't need to drive in Bakersfield traffic, you call every person in this church's name every day and you see what kind of difference is made. You see what kind of difference is made in your life. You see where your mind drifts on a daily basis and who it drifts to. Paul trained Timothy for 15 years. Timothy was a man of God. Timothy was trained how to do the work after Paul was going to die. We have burdens to share. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6 and 2. In the very same chapter, a few verses down, it says sometimes you have to bear your own burdens, but sometimes I can help you with yours. Sometimes you're going to have to go through it and it's going to be you and God all by yourself. And sometimes you're going to have to let people in. And the reason why people are suffering and the reason why people are sad and the reason why people are so lonely and the reason our suicide rate is what it is today is because people have not availed themselves of the greatest life-giving, life-saving, preserving institution that has ever been created in the world and they've not plugged into it, the church of Jesus Christ. They've never learned that their life has purpose and meaning and value and that there are people that depend on you. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 11, Therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you were also doing. Galatians 5, 13. By love, serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Our culture says selfish. Our culture says, what about me? Jesus keeps hammering, hammering, leading the church. No, put the towel around your waist. Don't pay attention to the conversation about greatness and wash feet because that's where greatness is. In history, people died for kings. Our king came to the earth and died for us. 
In history, kings are offered servanthood. Kings are offered great gifts. Kings are offered all kinds of lavish treatment. Our king of kings came down here and washed people's feet. He said, if you want to be great, be the servant of all. That's what it'll mean to make you great. He told elders that they had to be clothed with humility. He asked us to humble ourselves as a little child. And last of all, when you're plugged into the church of Jesus Christ, you're going to give yourself the opportunity to grow to be like Jesus. I'm going to read in Philippians 2, the last few verses of that. Or that main portion in chapter 2, verse 5. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me tell you a way tonight that you can convince God, yourself, and everybody else that Jesus is Lord and King and Savior of your life. You ready for this? When you plug yourself in and you're baptized into the body of Christ and you have a recognition that what that means is you're now an important part of a family. And you're going to serve that family and you're going to love that family and you're going to take everybody in that family with you to heaven. And all along the way, God is going to change you and mold you and alter you and you're going to have speed bumps in the way like Paul told the Galatians until Christ be formed in you. That's what God's trying to do. He's trying to form Jesus in you if you'll let him. You come through those doors and you get here and you have the opportunity to be here as God's family and you meet around this table every Lord's Day and every time the doors are open and you seek to excel to the edifying of the church. You do your very best to build everybody up from the youngest to the oldest. You come in the building and you make it your business not to get your seat. But to serve everybody in every other seat. I want to say this just for a minute. And my minutes are gone, but I'm going to do it anyway. There are people that we miss. And the reason we missed them was because of the kind of servants they were. You don't miss people that are blood-sucking leeches. You don't miss people that are takers. You don't miss those people. You don't. You don't miss them. You may be crotchety old so-and-so, mean as a snake, a taker. 
No, the ones you miss are the ones that would come in and speak to you and say hi to you. They're the guys and the girls that got it. They got it. You know what they got? They got, they got it that they knew how to serve. I'm thinking in my mind right now about widows at home that I was raised with in a congregation. People that were converted to Christ. You know what would happen every Monday night? We'd go to Irene Gideon's house. Daddy would cut her decrepit, stroke victim husband's hair every single Monday night. And that was a servant deal right there. As a kid, I got to see my parents serve. I'm privileged to have seen that. But I'll tell you what Irene, his wife, did for us. She organized the A-team at 7 o'clock, and she gave us Kool-Aid and candy. And we didn't have a TV, and Dad didn't always give us any candy for sure. She got it. There was a young couple at church that had a horrible, horrible time making ends meet. This little widow that didn't have the money to give it away, would, I, I saw her as a little kid put money in their pocket and pat them on the back and give them a big hug and say, I've been there before. She got it. She got it. The question is, do you get it? And you say, you know what, Cullen, I, I feel guilty. I, I don't go visit anybody. I don't go see anybody. Hadn't been to the hospital ever in my life. Never been to a nursing home. How do I learn? There are people in this audience right now. If you'll come talk to them, they'll train you. They'll show you. They'll develop that in you. They'll help you. Because you've never seen a father that didn't want his son to be greater than he was. And you've never met a mother that didn't want her daughter to be greater than she was. And that's what we're in the business of doing. We want to help people become more and more and more like Jesus every day in the Lord's church. Will you, will you come with us? That's my invitation. I want you to come with us. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They follow me. Will you follow him? We believe that we're following Jesus and we want you to follow him with us. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.